If you have your Bibles this morning, I went open to Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to look there today. 200,000 miles from home. You can't pull over to a gas station. You can't take your spaceship into the garage. But you know you have about two hours to keep your ship from becoming a permanent tomb floating into outer space. Jim Lovell, John Swigert, and Fred Hayes realized they were facing an elephant of a problem. But they kept their wits about them. Enough to realize that the way to solve their problem is the same way you eat an elephant. One bite at a time. (laughs) Has it ever occurred to you the most important step your children take is the first one? I mean, every parent dreams of being there, right? That the first time your child takes his first step. Well, the reason that so many people sit around and complain about broken down walls instead of rebuilding is they're unwilling to take the first step. Well, we're going to see that God has called Nehemiah to take on a seemingly impossible task, facing what appeared to be immovable obstacles. If you've ever been in that situation, and my guess is most of us have, you know the only way to handle it is to be able to break down whatever it is you face into bite-sized problems, into small steps that you can take one at a time. And Nehemiah demonstrates for us in the events that take place in chapter 2 what we need to do to guarantee success. And in fact, these steps have been taken already, or else we wouldn't be here today. The church would just be a figment of someone's imagination rather than this reality if these steps hadn't been taken. So if you're facing a wall that needs to be rebuilt, whether it's the walls of marriage or your business or your reputation or friendships or whatever it may be, there are four steps that begin your journey to success. And the first step is this. Step back and wait. Let me read verse 1 and see if you pick up on this interesting detail. Nehemiah 2 verse 1. In the month of Nisan... In the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought to him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. Here it is. In the month of Nisan. Now what's so important about the month of Nisan? Well, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, its story begins here. It came to pass in the month of Kislev in the twentieth year. Kislev was November. Nisan was in March. So simply put, Nehemiah had been praying to the Lord for four months about his problem. I mean, sometimes I think we feel like we've done a great deal if we spend about four minutes in prayer. And yet four months, day and night, without talking to anyone else, Nehemiah had been praying about this problem to the Lord. He had not mentioned this problem to anyone else. He didn't talk about it with anyone else. He kept the matter between him and God. And that's a difficult lesson for us to learn because praying and waiting go hand in hand. I want you to remember that waiting time is never wasting time. Many times the first thing we need to do when we face a problem is talk to the Lord and wait. I know it's tough. I mean, we live in a microwave culture, right? We live in this instant world. We have everything from instant coffee to instant potatoes. And our life travels at warp speed and it's only getting faster day by day. 
Recently, there was a headline in the news that said, Physicists Smash Internet Speed Record. And the columnist said the researchers had more than doubled the world speed record for internet data transfer. See, our modern life has one speed. It's fast. But one of the things we need to learn about God is He puts a premium on patience. When you wait on the Lord, as you're praying to Him about a problem, you're not wasting time. You're investing time. The great physician has a waiting room where he wants us to sit and wait and trust him until he tells us exactly what we need to do about a problem. And that raises a legitimate question. Why? Why does God make us wait at times instead of just giving us the instant answers? And the answer is pretty simple. Because God wants us to get on his timetable. See, Nehemiah knew what we have a hard time remembering. And that is this. What could be, and even what should be, cannot be until God is ready for it to be. One of the greatest lessons we can learn about God is this. We are always concerned about time. God is always concerned about timing. Galatians 4.4 says this. But when the time was right, God sent his Son. God doesn't operate on your timetable or mine. He operates on His. And you may get behind God, but you'll never get ahead of Him. Because if you try to get ahead of Him, the only place you're going to wind up is out on a limb. You see, with God, the what always precedes the how. And what I mean by that is this. Nehemiah knew what God had called him to do. That was to rebuild the walls. But he had no clue how God would do it. Or even when God would do it. He just had to pray and wait. And wait. You know, I remember when I graduated from college, I, I thought, man, I'm going to immediately just find that church. They're going to hire me. I'm going to start ministry. And, and everything's going to be great. But God had other plans. And it took just over nine months, countless interviews, before Amy and I finally found the right church, the one that God wanted us to serve at. And you know, looking back, had you told me that it was going to take nine months, I might have given up immediately. Or I might have just taken that ministry opportunity that I knew wasn't right, but it was convenient. But also looking back, that was probably one of the strongest times in my life, in my prayer life. See, that's why God wants us to wait, to teach us to wait. Because when God delays, at least in our minds, and God forces us to wait, He's building into us things like patience, perseverance, persistence, faith. Isaiah 28.16 says, Whoever believes will not act hastily. Haste makes waste, right? So the first step we need to take whenever we're facing these broken down walls is to step back and wait. Step two is to step up and ask. Verse two. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. See, one of the great things about Nehemiah is he's very transparent. 
In chapter 1, we see a Nehemiah of faith. Now, we see a Nehemiah of fear. Because he had carried this burden for four months. For four months, he had not complained. He stayed faithful to his duties. For four months, he didn't pout. He didn't whine. He just went about his business. However, the burden of God's call in his life had gotten heavier and heavier. And he could no longer hide on the outside what was going on on the inside. And he let his feelings be known. And the reason Nehemiah was afraid was this. No one ever showed sadness in the presence of the king. You always had to be upbeat and happy because your job was to make the king happy. And if you ever made the king unhappy, he could put you to death immediately. I mean, you ever heard the phrase, someone said they bite your head off when they didn't like something you said? The king could do that to Nehemiah, literally. And the king asked him, he said, why are you so sad? And the moment of truth arrived. And very delicately, he shares his burden with the king. Verse 3. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lie in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So far, so good. Nehemiah shares his burden. But then he gets the shock of his life. Verse 4 says this, Then the king said to me, What is it you want? The king just did the unthinkable. He gave his cupbearer a blank check. So what was Nehemiah going to do? He utilizes one of the greatest weapons a Christian has in their arsenal as they face problems in everyday life. The next statement in verse 4 says this, Then I prayed to the God of heaven. You can call these 911 prayers or microwave prayers. You know the kind, right? You, you hit time, cook, five seconds, beep, and you send it off to God. Nehemiah shoots up this instant prayer, asking God, give him the words to say. And that's a great thing for us to learn the next time the pressure is on or the heat is up. When you're about to present the most critical market proposal of your career or you're about to handle the most difficult customer of your business or you're about to address a very sensitive problem with your spouse or coworkers, before you do it, pray. And Nehemiah did something else besides pray. He also planned. Because you're going to see in the response he gives to the king one of the greatest mistakes I think people make when they face problems like this. They pray for opportunities to solve the problem, but they don't plan as if they expect God to give them the opportunity. Nehemiah prayed, but he also planned. Listen to what he says, verse 5. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so I can rebuild it. And the king, with the queen sitting beside him, Asked me, sorry. He asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall. And for the residence I will occupy. 
And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. See, Nehemiah thought the problem through. He knew he needed two sets of people to help him. First, he needed the governors of the surrounding areas that he would be traveling through to give him safe passage. And he knew he needed the keepers of the forest to give him the timber he needed to rebuild the walls. But he also knew that the only one that could make either of these things happen was the king. Nehemiah was ready. He knew God would do his part. And Nehemiah had done his part. God's part was to push things through. Nehemiah's part was to think things through. So he knew exactly what to ask for. He knew he would need safe travels. He had already checked out the nearest Home Depot and made a purchase order so he could get the timber and the supplies to rebuild the walls. Now think about what would have happened if Nehemiah had not planned anything. If he had taken this laissez-faire attitude. Well, I'll just leave it up to God. He would have hardly gotten out of the city until he would have been stopped and set back because he didn't have the passport. Or maybe he made it safely through these countries and he gets to Jerusalem and would have had no means to get the materials needed to rebuild the walls. And yet, even though Nehemiah prayed and he planned, he kept the proper perspective. He says in verse 8, because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. You look at any success you have in your life and remember this. It is because the gracious hand of God was upon you. When you know God is on your side, when you know He will do His part, and you have done your part, then you step up and ask. Third, you step in and you look. Verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Kind of interesting. Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem and he did nothing. Now what was he doing? I don't know. He was probably resting. I mean, it had been a hard journey. He was probably praying. He was still planning. And for three days, Nehemiah was working behind the scenes. Not making a fuss. Living under the radar. Not calling attention to himself. Working quietly behind the scenes is smart. It's scriptural. For thousands of years, as you read through the Old Testament, you find that God was working quietly behind the scenes, getting this world ready for the coming of Jesus. Incidentally, don't get too discouraged when you look at what's happening in our world. Because God is still working quietly behind the scenes. He's just simply getting it ready for the second coming of His Son. Well, after those three days, here's what Nehemiah does. Verse 12. I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal, well, and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. In one version, it says, Nehemiah viewed the walls. It means to closely examine. It was a medical term used by surgeons to describe this intense examination of a wound. See, Nehemiah was finding facts. He was fixing his focus, doing his homework. Because this task was great. 
The circumference of the city was between one and a half to two and a half miles. And the destruction was great, and the project was going to be massive. So Nehemiah wanted to make sure he had every fact. See, there's this fine line when you face a difficult problem between getting the paralysis of analysis and between not doing your homework. The one thing you need to always remember when you face a problem, always walk before you talk. Always investigate before initiating. I guarantee you, as Nehemiah was investigating those walls, he was always asking those four questions of problem solving. First of all, what? What is the problem? The second question is where? Where do I begin? The third question is when? When do I need to get started? And then fourth, who? Who do I need to get involved? And then it says this in verse 16. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. Nehemiah understood that the leaders keep it low until everything is ready to go. Don't count your eggs before they hatch. Don't share what you think ought to be done until you're sure you know what should be done. And then finally, step out and act. Verse 17. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. Again, did you notice the personal pronouns? We, us, we. He was letting the people know up front, the people that barely knew him, that they were all in this together. You notice how he motivates the people to get off their duffs and go to work? It's not the danger of the broken down walls. It was the disgrace of the broken down walls. It wasn't just the physical welfare of the people at risk. It was God's glory and God's honor was on the line. Nehemiah was saying, in effect, that these walls need to be rebuilt, not because they're broken down, but because broken down walls are a reproach to God's people and to God himself. The Jews were God's chosen people. They were meant to be a light to the nations. They were going to produce the Messiah, the Savior of the world. But one look at the city, one look at the walls, and people were saying, you know, there must, must not be much to them. There certainly isn't much to their God. See, this wasn't a win one for the Gipper speech. This was a win one for God speech. And I love how they respond. Verse 18. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had sent to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. And you know, this could have been the end of the story. The very next verse could have said, and they lived happily ever after. <laughs> That's not what the way life is. You and I both know that. Next verse, verse 19. But when Sanballat, the Hornite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? Do you know who Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem were? These are the people that carry those vision extinguishers. 
that are looking to douse any fire of enthusiasm that wants to do any great work for God. See, one thing we continuously pray for is opportunity. But understand this. When you pray for opportunity, you're going to get opposition. The Apostle Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 16.9. He said, A huge door of opportunity for good work has opened up here. There is also mushrooming opposition. There's no opportunity without opposition. People that walk by sight are always hostile towards those who walk by faith. When you stand up in faith, others will stand up to fight. But more importantly than opposition is how do you respond to it? And Nehemiah gives us a great way to do that. Verse 20. I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. See, there are three responses to ridicule, criticism, and cynicism. First, you respond with conviction. He said, the God of heaven will give us success. You've got to believe the work you're doing is God's work. Then respond with courage. He said, we his servants will start rebuilding. That is, you've got to believe that you are in the will of God and as his people and his servants, with his hand upon you, the work will be completed. And then respond with confrontation. He said, as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. In other words, he said, you have three choices. Lead, follow, or get out of the way. See, the way to deal with fear and foes is shift your focus from the fear and the foes to a father who gives you his permission to do his work, who gives his protection while you do his work and his provisions to complete his work. Nehemiah knew that. Him and his project were in God's hands. And it made all the difference. Made all the difference whose hands it were in. You know, a basketball in my hand, worth about $19. In Michael Jordan's hand, though, it's worth $33 million. A baseball in my hand is worth about 6 bucks. In Chris Bryant's hands, it's worth over $15 million. A golf club in my hand, worth about $100. Tiger Woods' hand, it's worth $50 million. A rod in Moses' hand, parts the Red Sea. A slingshot in David's hand, kills a giant. Nails in the hands of Jesus, produce salvation for the entire world. You see, it all depends on whose hand it's in. And thank God, with Nehemiah, we can put our problems, our concerns, our worries, our hopes, our fears, our dreams, our future, our families, everything we are in God's hands. And one step at a time, with his help, we rebuild broken walls. We accomplish mighty things. As we close, do you need to put your life, your future in God's hands? It begins by surrendering your life to Him. And if that's what you need to do, I invite you to come. Come by after service and talk to me. Stop this week at the church and visit with me. I'd be honored to share with you how to surrender your life to God.
Let's pray. God, I thank you for the life and for the courage of Nehemiah. And Lord, I pray you help us as we look to see in our lives how to best serve you. Help us to wait on you for your timing is perfect. Help us to ask for your help. And most importantly, Lord, help us to be prepared when the time is right. Prepare our hearts and our minds and our lives to serve you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.